You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons. Visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Welcome, friends, uh, to City Church of Long Beach, to our friends who are online, our friends who are here in person. Really great uh, to be with everybody today. I'm Bill White. I'm one of the co-pastors here. Um, And City Church is a radically welcoming community on the journey towards Jesus, joining him in the renewal of all things. That's who we are. Um, and we are excited to pray for our kids. We love our kiddos. We've got a great little kids ministry here. And uh, Raylene Pacheco, come on down. Raylene is going to pray over our kiddos today. There it is. So if there's a kid near you, you can kind of reach out to them, and uh, whether they're online or here. And now uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for these beautiful little children that you've bring into our life that can teach us so many lessons if we lean in and pay attention. The purity of them, let it connect to us, Lord. Let it help us in our daily journeys. We just ask that you be with all of us and protect us from the heat while we're out there. (laughs) In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen to that. All righty. So kiddos, if you want, you can jump in with Raylene and some of the other leaders as they... uh, head out to have a good time. Uh, and if you would welcome Brenna Rubio. Hi. The other fearless co-pastor of City Church. You know, it's kind of a bummer. Like as the kids are going out, I'm like, they could help me a little bit in this first portion, oh, but it's all right. We didn't, think, we didn't think that far ahead. Oh, well, next time, um, next time. For those of you who looked this morning or at some point this weekend at the digital handout, that we send out by email and we have up on our website, you may have seen the title for this week's message, which is called Four Questions That Veggie Tales Never Answered. Because we're in this series where we're talking about the book of Jonah. Uh, and Jonah was definitely one of those things that Veggie Tales answered. But I do know, and I want to be sensitive to the fact that not everyone here has seen Veggie Tales, probably. Um, though I a substantial portion of you probably have. I know this because I had some people over on Thursday night for what ended up just being kind of a wine and chocolate night on my patio, which was really fun. Uh, And when this came up this Sunday, uh, you know, as soon as I said the word veggie tales, there's this spontaneous outbreak. Like if I start doing this, let's see what you guys do. Veggie tales, veggie tales, veggie tales, veggie tales. Thanks. Okay. So we know veggie tales. Also, I will admit to you, I didn't tell Bill this, but there was some frankly insulting conversation around if Bill and I were either Larry the cucumber or Bob the tomato, <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa, who would be who? I was a bit insulted. I'm no Bob, people. Um, <laughs> it was pretty funny. Okay, so for those of you who don't know what veggie tales is, Google it, it's cute. And in our talking about VeggieTales, this this very funny little cartoon that retold some of the stories from the Bible and tried to find messages in those stories that kids could relate to. As we talk about our sermon this morning as being four questions that VeggieTales never answered, I'm feeling very self-conscious at the moment. I'm still stuck at being Bob the tomato. (laughs) The four questions that I never answered we're actually not bagging on VeggieTales. Actually not saying that VeggieTales was wrong for not asking or answering the questions that we're gonna talk about this morning, specifically as we get to the part of Jonah's story 
where the whale or the big fish comes in. VeggieTales wasn't bad or wrong. See, there are different developmental stages in life. And just like I generally don't work on like algebra with my six-year-olds, right? Because they're not ready for it. The questions we're gonna talk about this morning wouldn't make sense to talk about with six-year-olds. Things are just, you know, it, it's more complicated. So a lot of times we talk about here at City Church, and some of you may have heard these terms before, we talk about some of the stages of development as being construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. So construction is the stage that my six, almost seven-year-olds are in. The world is pretty simple, and they're just trying to get the basics. They're really excited about learning things. Like this last week, they learned how sewers work right? Like what happens when they flush the toilet? And that was like super exciting for them, right? Because they're just constructing this basic sense of this is how the world works. Now, later on in life, they're going to hit the stage that some of my other kids are at. They're going to be teenagers or preteens, and they're going to start deconstructing. It's no longer going to be enough to like know how the toilet works. They're going to be asking all sorts of questions about environmentalism and just, just other things, city planning and equity and, and all sorts. Of, they're going to complicate their world. And that's a stage of deconstruction. I'm choosing a really random example. I don't even know where it came from. I got to be honest. Like, I don't know what reconstruction looks like. With Get toilets. your mind out of the sewer. Yes. <laughs> it's just a true story of what I talked about with my kids this week. Um, uh, yeah, so they hit the stage of deconstruction and they have questions. And honestly, some of those questions that some of my kids are asking, sometimes they can actually sound a bit cynical to me, right? They're full of, full of anger. Doesn't mean they're bad questions. They're just questions that honestly, when my children are asking them, I know that they're actually not asking for me to solve the problem. I actually know that there's not gonna be any like one answer that just like wraps it up in a neat and tidy package, partly because just, the world is actually complicated. They're actually asking good, complicated, deep questions that are worthy of being asked. And I know that at a certain point, they're gonna to start to reconstruct. And the reconstruction phase is not gonna involve answering all the questions. It's just gonna be sort of starting to learn to live with them, to figure out which ones do I have a good enough answer? Am I willing to kind of put like, a, hey, I'll put a pin in this one. This is gonna help me at least move forward in life. And I still have some questions over here, but, but in reconstruction, we start to get a little bit more comfortable with tension, with nuance, with complexity, even with the word mystery. And I would actually say that's actually where mature faith lives because faith is not knowing all the answers. Faith is being comfortable holding some of our questions and leaning into them, not ignoring them, but having hope that the answers will come, even if it takes a lifetime. So that's kind of what we're hoping for today. We're not gonna live in the VeggieTales construction place. We're gonna go a little deeper into the story. So we are gonna ask some questions. Those questions may actually sound cynical to some of you, but we're actually hoping to get to a place of communi communicating where we think there's some deeper mystery. It's going to be a good time. So yeah. uh, Brian Raphael, I think uh, you're going to read scripture for us. Brian, if you'd come on down, if you'd welcome Brian. Librarian extraordinaire. Actually, let's move you here so those folks yeah, on, Zoom folks on Zoom can see you. Too, yeah. Thank you. I'll move my coffee. Sorry, this is okay. uh, Jonah, 
chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Thanks be to God. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to, Thanks God. Be to God. Thank you, Thanks, Brian. Brian. That's awesome. All right. So we're uh, we're going to look at these four questions today and see where, where it goes. So um, question number one, did Jonah really get swallowed by a fish? Like, you wonder this, don't you? I mean, come on. You, you actually wonder, like, did that really happen? Come on. You know you do. And some of us like, yeah, Jonah got swallowed by a fish. And others are like, Jonah got swallowed by a fish, right? But let's, let's ask the question, did Jonah get swallowed by a fish? There's some other good questions we'll ask as well. But as we ask this question, it, it's really part of a bigger question, which is why the book of Jonah? What, what is it? What's the genre? Why, why was it written? Who was it written to? What's, what's, the, what's the overall approach? And we talked the last couple of weeks about the role of satire in the Bible, which is not uncommon. And part of the, the point of a good satire is to actually highlight things that are very true, but doing it in a way that's perhaps exaggerated or... Uh, in some ways doesn't sound true. Does that make sense? So when you come to the book of Jonah, there, there's some telltale signs. I mean, God wants you to get swallowed by a fish, you're going to get swallowed by a fish. Great. But let's look just at, just at chapter one, and we can go, we can take this through the whole book, okay? But just at chapter one, you'll notice there's certain uh, ways that, that this book was written down that are meant to show us like, hey, now this is a big fish story. All right. So look at how often the word great comes up. Like this is a big story. It was a, Nineveh was a big city, right? It was a big wind. It was a big storm, really big storm, right? And, and that the, the men feared God in a big way. And then God appointed a big fish. It's the same Hebrew word used throughout. And as you track these sorts of themes through the rest of the book of Jonah, they just keep coming up and up and up and up, right? It's the idea that you, you, you're putting this in there as, as you're writing the story because you want people to notice. You want people to notice, like, this is quite a big fish story, mm -hmm. And there's real value to it. Not the, the author of the book of Jonah, who we, we're not exactly sure who that is, when they, when they wrote it down, they're not writing it down because it's untrue. No, that, that's not the point at all. That's not why this book was written. They're writing it down because, oh, it's quite true. Rachel Held Evans, uh, she deals with this story and some other stories like it a lot in her book, Inspired, which I highly recommend if you have questions about the Bible and stuff like that. Great book. But she quotes an, an old saint who, uh, this guy, G.K. Chesterton, and he says, fairy tales are more than true. 
Not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. Mm -hmm. There's a reason we like superhero movies, right? All good people like superhero movies. Was I'm that raising a... my hand for my husband. Okay, I, thought, I was like, yeah, really? What? For my whole family, really. Yeah, okay, yeah. there you go. Right, superhero movies are, are awesome. They're like the best movies. <laughs> Someone laughed. <laughs> was, was that the theater instructor laughing at me? <laughs> Hold on, that was, that was a bit insulting. Um, I love these movies, not because they're like fictitious, but because there, there's something true of wanting to sacrifice, wanting to be a hero, recognizing people's individuality is in so many ways a superpower, right? There's a sense in which the book of Jonah is, is begging that question, begging the question around, have you faced some seriously stormy seas? And sometimes the very thing that you thought was the worst thing that could ever happen to you, even worse than the stormy sea, actually ends up being your rescue. Mm -hmm. It's actually the story of our lives. And in that sense, it's more than true. Hmm. I love that. I mean, what comes to mind for me is a sense that it's not about, is it true or not true, but what kind of true? Yeah. You like get confused yeah. about what kind of truth mm -hmm. we should be looking for when we're reading any story, much less scripture. Love it. So we have that question. And don't you love how Bill didn't really resolve it for you? Just gave you some things to think about, right? Because again, we're actually not trying to resolve it. We're trying to step into some mystery together. Here's a second question. And really, this is what sermon prep was for us this week. It was Bill and I sitting saying like, okay, like two verses. What questions do we have? Got it. Let's talk about questions. Here's my question. Does God require sacrifice? I mean, there's a Veggie Tales reading of the story that just doesn't ask that question. Were the sailors supposed to, so, to, to throw Jonah into the sea? Like, is that actually what God wanted in that moment? You know, the story itself, the sailors are asking that question. We can go back a couple of verses, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to have many slides today because I, I was late uh, in, in getting things sent to folks. Um, but let's go back. We're going to start at verse 11. Just listen. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they, the sailors, asked Jonah, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah had already admitted it was his fault. He was pretty confident the storm was about him. So Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. He replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord have done as you pleased. Do you hear them hedging their bets? They don't actually think this is the right thing to do. Their first instinct was mercy. Their first instinct was, let's just try. Let's row back to land if we can. Let's save him. 
But Jonah told them this is what they needed to do. And so they're kind of like, ah, God, we're not sure. So please don't, don't smite us for doing the wrong thing if this is the wrong thing. We're just trying something here. They're full of doubt about this action that they take, throwing Jonah into the sea. And when I think about what occurs to me is, if we, if we agree that this is what God wanted, that God wanted Jonah thrown into the sea, that God wanted Jonah to die for his mistake, it kind of seems like we're saying that the sailors were more merciful than God was. It feels like we're giving ammunition. It was a couple of months ago now. I'm not sure if any of you saw this story, but there was this whole thing going around the internet about these, it, was at least, it might've been a group of pastors, but somebody put up a story out there on the internet about the sin of compassion. <laughs> Wouldn't want to be too nice to people. Wouldn't want to be too nice. You know, that like compassion can be a slippery slope, right? It's dangerous. Being too compassionate can be dangerous. And, and honestly, I just think you have to have this reading of Jonah to think that that makes sense. Those sailors, they were on the slippery slope of compassion that they tried to rescue Jonah. There's implications to this vision of a violent and vengeful God. And the reality is this picture of a God who, who requires this kind of tit-for-tat justice, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, doesn't that look more like, like just us? than it does really any picture of the divine. There are personal implications for this vision of who God is, because if this is what God is like, and if this is what God wants for us, well, then maybe that shapes how we parent. And our parent, parenting may be a lot about punishment and control. God did it. Sometimes your kid just has to get thrown over the boat. Let's not be too compassionate. How we resolve conflicts with our friends and our family. Really quick, kick off the island, right? It has implications for our social systems. What do we think justice looks like in our court systems, in our schools? Our willingness and even our eagerness to go to war. Perhaps to torture people that we think might have information useful to us, all of these different things, right? They actually tie back to how do we picture God? Brian Stevenson, uh, who spent most of his lifetime working for prisoners on death row and, and thinking about justice in the criminal system and, and now is also doing lots of amazing, great work when it comes to racial reconciliation and justice, a thick, meaty understanding of what racial reconciliation would even look like. He wrote this, an absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair, until we all suffer from the absence of mercy, and we condemn ourselves just as much as we victimize others. The closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, which 
I think throwing Jonah off the boat was an extreme level. The more I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy. We all need justice. And perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. This isn't the only story in scripture where we see the theme of punishment. And does God require sacrifice? Last week, I was prepping the lesson for the kids and it was the story of Noah and the ark and friends, it's so much more than cute animals. That theme of punishment and sacrifice is there. How do we understand it? Abraham, believing God is asking him to sacrifice to kill his son, Isaac, the son of the promise. The whole system of ritual sacrifices. Jesus going to the cross. It's a theme. What if there's an alternative reading? What if it's a little different than it has been presented to many of us before? What if it is about how scripture is reflecting and meeting us in our own violent tendencies. There's a great pastor thinker named Gregory A. Boyd um, who has written tomes and tomes upon this, this theme. And uh, he really in many ways embodies kind of the heart of city church and saying like, let's focus on Jesus first. What does Jesus have to show us about this question? What does Jesus show us about God and, and where sacrifice fits into all of this? And this is what he says, if we fully trust that God is as beautiful as he reveals himself to be on the cross, not in the violence of the cross, but in the self-giving, redemptive love of the cross. If God is as beautiful as he reveals himself to be on the cross, we must regard the ugly surface appearance of these portraits, portraits like in Jonah, to reflect the sinful way his people imagined God not the way God actually is. But when we, by faith, look through the ugly surface of these portraits, we can see God stooping out of love to meet his people where they are at and to bear their sin, which is why in scripture he takes on an ugly surface appearance that reflects the ugliness of their sin. Let me try and put it a little more simply here. Jonah is the one who's saying, this is what God requires. But remember, this is a satire. And Jonah's an anti-hero. Jonah's not the wise guy. He's the guy who keeps screwing it up. Why are we taking Jonah's word for it? Jonah says, God wants you to throw me into the sea. When they do, God sends a great big fish to rescue him. That's what God does. And the story of Abraham and Isaac Isaac isn't killed. God sends, I think it's a ram in that story. No, just kill the ram. He redirects the violent tendencies of his people. And Jesus, yes, he dies. But it's not God demanding this violent sacrifice. It's, it's God both submitting to the violence of the people around him in this way that just exposes it, exposes just the ugliness and the cruelty of it all and defeats it with triumphant love. It doesn't work. Jesus is still alive. Love wins. 
All right. <laughs> that was deep. I was like, that was kind of like a little mini sermon. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you no, it was great. I was like <laughs> taking notes. It was great. I loved it. Um, question number three. So it's really back to question number one, right? Did, did Jonah really get swallowed by the fish? And I think we're going to come back to this whole question of sacrifice yeah. too. Like, so the sailors are dealing with sacrifice, should we sacrifice, all that stuff. We're asking this question about Jonah. Was he really swallowed by the fish? But the, the bigger question, the deeper question is, are miracles possible? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, this is, this is what we actually are wondering. And we're wondering it because for a couple of different reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, some of us are wondering it because we really need miracles to be possible. Mm. Some of us are wondering it just because we just wonder things. As we look at the, this story, uh, you know, the, the sailors clearly think miracles are possible. Jonah clearly thinks that miracles are possible. Uh, that's, that's part of the worldview. Our worldview and our culture has shifted and so many times we're asking these philosophical questions. Are miracles possible? Scientific questions. Was that really a miracle? And I want us to, to think about miracles in a, in a couple of different ways as we think about this question. One is, as you read through the Bible, very rarely do miracles produce the kind of relationship that God wants with God's people. Hmm. Very rarely does the, the great big show of, you know, the, the pillar of cloud and crossing the Red Sea, does that produce like, yeah, we really feel close to you, God, and we really want to treat people right and connect with you. That's actually not what happens. Like, cool, thanks, we got it. And we go on with our life. I don't know if you've seen the statistics on people who uh, get uh, major heart surgery or heart replacement surgery. Like such a small fraction actually change how they eat. They're like, cool, got it, thanks. On with my life. Mm. That the, the, the miracles actually don't produce the very thing that they're supposed to produce, which is not a miracle, but a connection and maybe even love. And so there is definitely a sense in which there's this divine shyness that we see in the life of Jesus and, and in our contemporary world, where miracles are not the bread and butter, beans and tortillas of our daily existence. But there's a, another piece to the miracle story, I think that's that of late has really drawn me into it, which is a sense of when, when you start looking at Jesus, right, the, the center of our faith. I mean, Jesus, like, there were lots of miracles around Jesus, healings and feedings, just some wonderful stuff. But Jesus wasn't, it wasn't like he styled himself as a miracle worker. That wasn't what he was about. And his miracles always had this, 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 this angle to them, this slant. It's not like, oh, I really need a parking spot at the mall. You know, oh, God. 
No, read through the Gospels and you'll see that the people who get miracles are the people who've been pushed to the margin or even off the edge of the margin. That's where the miracles are happening. And so it actually complicates our relationship to the miraculous. Because so often we're not particularly interested in either being on the margins ourselves or going to the margins or dealing with people who are. Mm. And I, I got to thinking this week and I asked my wife for permission to share this story. Um, and it was just, this is the picture. I'm like, yeah, that, that's it. So my wife works at a Christian clinic up on Skid Row in Los Angeles. And this clinic has been around for 25 years because miracles happen. Mm -hmm. Every, I mean, the only way that clinic exists is because of miracles. I mean, they are on the heart of Skid Row, serving people without insurance. They never have enough money. They never have enough staff. I mean, there's safety issues. There's, you know, literally I was talking with one of my, one of her friends who's now become one of my friends who says that, yeah, she would, she would step over people every day on the way to work. Mm -hmm. People sleeping in the streets, stepping over human feces. Like this is, this is the world. This is at the margins. And I, I was thinking about this and realizing it was, it was a couple of weeks ago, Katie came home and she told us a couple of stories. I'm like, I, that's just crazy. So let me, let me just give you a picture of what I think is actually something that that's at least on my heart about what I think God thinks about miracles. So let me tell you about 48 hours in the life of Los Angeles Christian Health Center. This is just a couple of weeks ago, 10 days ago. So, so she comes home and she's like, um, we're, we're getting audited by this government agency and it's a crisis. Like we've been wanting to get audited for like almost a year to increase kind of some of our, our pay schedule that the government pays us. And if they go up, we're going to make budget. And if they don't, we're going to lay off people and not be able to care for all these patients. And we're, I mean, it's, it's just going to be a disaster. And we've been asking for it for, for almost a year. And then literally on Tuesday, we get a call from the auditor saying, I'm going to be there tomorrow. You better be ready. Hmm. And they're like, you got to clear out the junk room and move this and dial, you know, because, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that has to be done in 24 hours. Let me come back to the auditor, but that's the context. So we're like, oh my God, 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 please, you know, help. So the next day, um, I, I forget the order exactly. Um, the next day, uh, there's all this shouting in front of the clinic. It's right on Skid Row. It's what they call Fentanyl Row is where their clinic. It's hard to get in the door sometimes because all the tents. And there's all this shouting. And so one of the um, physician assistants runs out and realizes someone has died. They've OD'd literally on the front stoop of the clinic, like, like right there. So she starts in giving CPR call the paramedics, you know, she just keeps giving. So another physician's assistant runs out, 
nurse runs out, a medical assistant runs out, and they're like, all right, get the Narcan, right? Narcan is an overdose reversal drug. They give them Narcan, dead. Give them Narcan again, still dead. Give them Narcan again, still dead. Eight minutes in, five doses of Narcan later, this man <gasps> takes a deep breath, and he has literally been raised from the dead. They're crying. They're shaking. Like this man was, was dead and is alive again. The audit goes on. The next day, no, no, no that day, that day. So the auditor um, sits down. She, she goes through the, 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 the rooms, the exam rooms, and she's like, um, you've got some major issues here. She's, she's telling one of the, the clinic execs who's kind of showing her through. And uh, she's like, you know, two of your, uh, two of your rooms uh, don't have hot water. That's grounds for immediate failure. Mm. Like you're, you'll be docked. I'm sorry. And look at you, your physicians don't have the, the paperwork in order to, to work at the local hospital in case they need to. In 25 years, none of them has ever needed to round on patients in the hospital, but besides the point, like you're, I'm sorry, um, you're, you're not going to pass your audit. Hmm. So that night, Katie comes home. I mean, she is just, so the clinic administrator, she's freaking out. She's calling all of her friends. You, I don't know. We're, we're done. I don't, I'm not sure what we're going to do. Pray for something, for a miracle, right? So the next day comes. Next day comes and uh, a man decides to load his gun and go shoot up the, um, the liquor store next door to the clinic and then proceeds to pace with his gun. The, the clinic, has, it's, this, it's this gorgeous building, new building with these big glass, it's, it's an all glass lobby. And he just paces in front of the clinic. Uh, in front of the lobby with his gun for like 30 minutes. It takes the police a long time to get there. I mean, it's like half a block away, right? So the security guard, she, I mean, she literally just calmly walks to the front door. She has, Katie saw her, she has this massive ring of like 50 keys. She grabs the key. She locks the door. She calmly says, now we're all going to go into the garage. And she takes all the patients and all the staff into the garage for the next 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Katie came up to her actually this week and saw her and was like, oh my God, you, that was amazing what you did. And she's like, I'm still shaking. Mm -hmm. She says, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I have 50 keys. I picked the right one. <laughs> and Katie says this literally this is what she said Katie says that was god mm -hmm. and she says yeah it was god and my mom <laughs> like i don't know like mom was there too we're good with it right yeah. and everything ends up being totally fine so at the end of the day the the auditor comes and sits down with the clinic administrator the auditor is a woman of color the clinic administrator is a woman of color. And they, they sit down face to face. And she says, uh, you know, you've got some real problems with your clinic. 
said, but I, I went home yesterday at the end of the day and I sat down with my family. And I said, these are my people. And they're, they're saving my people. Mm. And she says, I just start, I start bawling. I can't believe what you do. Your clinic passed. Mm. Fix the hot water. <laughs> and that was the end. And it's like, I, I mean, this is 48 hours. And literally, this is every week in their life of this clinic is they live on miracles. They live on miracles. And so in, in, in so many ways, the, the question of the miraculous, um, and I think there's a quote, um, this old uh, novelist writes, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about the answers. We want to ask these philosophical questions about are miracles possible? But the miracles that Jesus does are on the margins, mm. doing justice, caring for people who desperately need it. And Rachel Held Evans, again, sort of the patron saint of, of, of our church, she asks, she says, the real question isn't, are miracles real? The real question is, are we living like we believe they are by doing the things that Jesus does. So here's your last question. I'm going to try to kind of keep it short because I think Bill and I had a lot of fun with this. These are, it's good to ask questions. Does God work like a vending machine? Is the picture of God that you just heard and all those amazing stories about the LA Health Clinic, is that a vending machine God? Because that's the picture of God that Jonah presented to the sailors. And if we're not careful, we could get sucked into. Well, Jonah said, do that. And when Jonah did that, or when the sailors followed what Jonah said, the storm stopped. If I can just push the right button, God will do what I want. I just, and if God doesn't do what I want, it must mean I didn't push the right button, right? I messed up. I mean, honestly, as, as Bill was sharing the story of the man who came back, I was thinking about the funeral. I was at yesterday, right? And if somebody took the story of this miracle and said, well, LA Health Clinic pushed the right button. And so God did what they wanted. What button did my friend not push? That her husband still died. Too young. We wanna be in control. We wanna believe it's that simple. I just need to find the right button. It's really human, but it's not how relationships work best. And we're actually talking about our relationship with God. And if you don't like the word God, because I know there's some people here we're still exploring, it's not how our relationship with reality actually works to believe that we have. 
that kind of control. And they engage really this kind of magical thinking, right? That, yeah, I can just pray, and if I do it the right way, God will give me a parking spot. If I just flip open the Bible, God will give me the verse that will tell me whether or not I should break up with my boyfriend. I mean, God does some amazing things. God, I think, can do whatever God wants. But I don't think the picture is God as a vending machine. Just push the right button, whether that's throwing someone into the ocean, punishing them, or saying the right combination of words. Make sure you pray the right kind of Jesus prayer, sinner's prayer, to make sure you have a relationship with God. Push the right button. What if it's actually more than that? It's actually about our hearts. You know, that picture of does God require sacrifice? (laughs) As much as we see the theme in scripture where sacrifice does come up over and over again, we also see these glimpses of how God is pushing back. Like in Hosea 6, 6, where God is saying, I want you to show love, not just keep offering sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. So John Golden Gay, who was a professor of the Old Testament um, for many, many years, he had this picture of how people sometimes want to use sacrifice or right actions in a pushing the button mechanistic kind of way. And so he presents the picture of a pair of spouses, and one of them has made a big mistake. One of them has really messed up and hurt the other spouse's feelings. And so they go out and get flowers for their spouse, right? That may be a good thing to do, but it kind of depends, right? If they get the flowers and they come in and go like, whap, fine, I got your flowers. Good now, right? May not work may not have quite the effect. It doesn't work that way. Relationships aren't about just like push the right button. You got the flowers, you're out of the doghouse. No. It's going to work if the flowers are just an additional reinforcement, an additional sort of external expression of something that has already happened internally, right? If there's actually true remorse, And maybe beyond the flowers, the flowers are a way of opening up conversation, right? The flowers go along with an apology. Hey, I'd like to sit and talk more. I'd like to understand how that, I mean, all the different things, right? Where the flowers can be good. The flowers aren't necessarily bad. There can be a way of sort of making restitution, right? In this sort of tangible, tangible way. What it reminded me of is the concept of restorative justice which, uh, you know, I'm married to an educator, so I hear a lot about this. It's a big concept in the school right, schools right now, as well as in the justice system, where there's this sense of so often what people are looking for in a sort of push the button vending machine sort of way. is like, hey, if somebody screws up, just figure out how they need to pay for their mistake to kind of balance the books. And that's what justice is, right? That's all justice is. Does that really fix anything? So again, turning to Brian Stevenson, who uh, worked so long in the justice system, he's gonna say no. It's our shared 
vulnerability and imperfection that nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. When we punish the broken, walking away from them or hiding them from sight, like in prison, it only ensures that they remain broken and so do we. There is no wholeness outside of our reciprocal humanity. There's no wholeness without actually sitting down and having a conversation. So the old way, justice is just, you know, somehow balance the books, quid pro quo. The new way says, how, how do you through conversation take responsibility for the harm that you've done and then begin to make repair? That flowers can be a sign of repair, a way of saying I was unkind and now I wanna do a deliberate kindness for you. But it's the whole thing that matters. It's the whole bundle. And that requires actual relationship. Okay, so let's bring it back to Jonah. This really is about Jonah. Jonah's basic response is quid pro quo. I screwed up. Guess you got to punish me and kill me. Couldn't he have actually just said, yeah, why don't you turn the boat around? You know, like, maybe just like, I just need to tell God, like, hey, I'm willing to talk. Maybe I was a little rash, you know, heading in the opposite direction of where he asked me to go. Jonah was actually still taking the easy way out. He was still hiding from relationship. He was still avoiding the conversation and the deep work of taking responsibility and moving towards repair. And so maybe that's actually what God is inviting us into here, saying, you could actually do the deep work because God's gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, rich in mercy.